It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today we move on to part two of Brit Rest is Dead, the eulogy. Which was a name decided by my co-host for today, Mr. Simon Heath. How are you, sir? Hello, we're still going with that. <laughs> well, I've done all the publicity for the first episode this morning. Oh, okay. So all right, fair enough. Yeah. Everybody can blame, it everybody blame, no, no, it's fine. Everybody blame me for that one. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get, the, get the t-shirts done. <laughs> uh, today we are moving on. Well, we've kind of got one foot in the all-in era before going to the joint era. And this is a crossover episode, but it crosses over with perhaps the biggest contribution to British professional wrestling and worldwide, the United Kingdom wrestling scene produced, which was the Snake Pit. And that Snake Pit was presided over by one Billy Riley, um, former middle middleweight wrestling champion of the world, uh, the kind of founder of the Snake Pit, the developer of uh, submission wrestling, and kind of the key trainer of catches catch wrestling in the 20th century. Uh, Billy Riley was born in Lancashire, Wigan, in 1896, and really took to this catch-as-catch-can style, which was really a way of settling disputes amongst the working classes. Yeah, it was the old, uh, you know, come out the mines, down the pub, somebody's upset you, let's have uh, let's have a grappling bout in the field. Yes, um, and we are soaking fields here. We, yeah, 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 literally. Canal yeah. sides, fields, anywhere with flat ground. Yeah, canal sides. God, that's a bit dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and there were rules to this, by the way. We'll get to the rules in a moment. But the, like tradition, there was accepted things like don't poke people's eyes and gouge the cheeks and stuff. Yeah, but it's important to understand sort of how it differed greatly from amateur wrestling at the time, which was predominantly sort of Greco-Roman Olympic style. Yeah, sort of a thing. Yeah, because obviously the Olympics were just around the corner being a big international event and amateur mm. wrestling was starting to develop again as a true sport but the difference between amateur and catches catch can is the main difference is submission wrestling is yeah. um kind of part of the sport i know i actually have an american high school wrestling book and even in college in high schools in the states you were allowed to use submissions for a long time but amateur in the rest of the world you're not allowed to use submissions because they're considered dangerous because obviously in amateur tournaments you're Maybe wrestling three or four times in a day, and it's round robin, so you're not losing. And you don't want to like yeah, break, break a down. shoulder. Yeah, yeah. So um, submissions were not a thing; they weren't allowed. Mm. Um, whereas in catches, catch can you could do anything you liked. Yes, you literally catch anything that you can, grab any any protrusions. Well, <laughs> within reason, obviously. There's, oh, yes. uh, yeah, there's a few protrusions you weren't allowed to grab, but um, yeah. So in, in amateur wrestling, um, you've got if somebody gets you to the ground, you've got ten seconds to get a pinfall and then you have to let them up again but with catch catch can wrestling if somebody gets to the ground it's on you you've got to get up basically yes uh, there's no referee stoppage at that point you no. literally just and obviously there's no rope breaks in uh, in fields <laughs> <laughs> no true electric, there are indeed no road breaks in fields electric fence breaks maybe i don't know <laughs> be the world's first no rope barbed wire matches <laughs> in a sheep field in uh, in lancashire <laughs> oh dear but yes so the snake pit kind of developed off of this idea of eventually someone went hey why are we having to wrestle in field oh sorry a up why are we wrestling in fields yeah yes <laughs> so they the Billy Riley got together with a bunch of the key wrestlers at the time 
and they literally built a gym, which was uh, well, that's, I mean, that's gym. generous. It, it, it's, it's spreading a bit thin to call it a gym. Yeah. A, a shed at yeah. the end of an allotment would be closer to it. And generally speaking, you know, that shed produced some of the greatest professional wrestlers that ever lived and were the cornerstones of the entire industry for the next century. Yes. And, and I'm not kidding. Yeah, with, without that shed, there there is no... There's, well, there, there's there's possibly no glory days of Japanese wrestling. I would, there, I would without be. that shed, there is definitely no New Japan Pro Wrestling. There's yep. definitely no UWF. There is no. definitely no Pride. There's definitely no K1. There's Pancrase. definitely no Rings. There's definitely no UWFI International. No Pancras, no UFC. Yep. Um, we're talking that kind of level of influence worldwide. No Minoru Suzuki theme tune. No. <laughs> <laughs> no Kozi Ninare for you. No. No, we would be denied the joy of the trousers being trampled off at Wrestle Kingdom. Yes, so if you take anything away from this podcast, it's the importance of Lancastrian sheds. It sounds like... But essentially, we're not kidding. Essentially, pro wrestling at the time had three, two worlds... Well, let's say three world centers. There was the... um, Arena Mexico mm-hmm. in Mexico City, where CMLL were based, the oldest promotion in the world. There was the Businessman's Gin in St. Louis, which was where Luthers trained and where Ed Strangler Lewis had a base at the time. It was it was the place to be a pro wrestler. And the other one was Riley's Gym Wigan. Yeah. And the predominant style of modern, I suppose you could say independent, but not in Japan and, and Mexico. Yeah. But the predominant style of modern wrestling is essentially a combination of the three styles that were developed in those three places. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, if we're looking at the history of professional wrestling as, like, who's the key start points, Billy Riley's one. Yeah. And certainly Toots Mont is another one because he's the one that kind of, like, Toots Mont was the guy who kind of designed what professional wrestling looks like in the States. Yeah, from he, a business standpoint from, especially. Yeah, yeah. He, the, the Goldust trio, Ed Strangle Lewis, uh, Toots Mont, and... Um, their promoter, whose name Billy Sandow, that's it. They they were they were the ones who first said uh, wrestling should be a traveling show. Mm-hmm. Wrestling should work in a territory. Wrestling should be predetermined, so you can have a schedule of matches on an evening. You should be able to tell stories, and you should have a finish that is clear for everybody to understand. Yeah, so that they come back the next time. Um, all of them badass shooters. Mm. Um, and this is really, you know, the, the the turning point where wrestling becomes entertainment. But you still have that reality. And Riley is the predominant professional wrestling trainer in the United Kingdom at the time. And he is a promoter of professional wrestling in yes. the sense of booked professional wrestling matches. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also a trainer of shoot professional wrestling matches, which are done for money still, even in the 1930s and 40s. I think... Um, Ernie Riley was probably the last person in the 60s to have a closed door shoot fight for money yeah so that's uh, Billy's son that, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's the way that the uh, the way that Billy promoted professional wrestling was based on the all in style mm. um, and as as he argued you do you want to say it <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be a nice segue. Oh, sorry. As he I, argued, I missed the segue. I'll try again. As he argued... No, you see, I've forgotten it now. You see, you've put, can't you, make money on... Oh, yes, you can't make money out of medals and trophies. No, you've got to make a living somehow, and entertaining professional wrestling is a perfectly good way of making a living. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's really important in this sort of uh, period of history to, to point to the fact that these were what we now think of as professional wrestlers. Even though it's 
sort of what we would think of now as an amateur style. Yeah. Um, but these guys, the reason that they wanted to become wrestlers was to get out of the pits, essentially. Yeah. They had these horrible physical, you know, drudgery jobs that they were desperately trying to escape from. And one of the only ways to do that in 1950s Wigan yeah. um, was to become an entertainer. Yeah. And these guys were already, you know, great athletes. You, know, you spend mm-hmm. spend 16 hours a day down a pit, you, <laughs> you're going to be in pretty good shape. Um, are they, it's that brilliant kind of old-timey fitness as well. Yeah, um, none of, none of, let's be love. honest, none of them look like Finn Balor. No, no, they no. did not, no. Um, Finn Balor, another great shooter, by the way, actually is trained in shoot star wrestling, mm. but... Not at the Snake Pit. Not at the Snake Pit, no, he was uh, um NWA Hammerlock guy, mm. and they had a shoot program in there, because the, their argument was, we, we're sending you all over the world, you should be able to look after yourself. Zack Sabre. Zack Sabre, yeah, yep. there's another one as well. But yeah, uh, getting away from the point, but yeah, it is the very lean... Thick set, yeah. Not much of a neck going on. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it comes from all those years of hammering away in pits and allotments mm. and having to duck. Yeah, it's no good having a neck if you work, <laughs> if you work somewhere that's four foot high. Yeah, and if you're going to get full Nelson, the less neck you have, the better off you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they built this style around that their 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 techniques around that kind of body style yeah. and they used to say if you stuck your hand into a pit in Lancaster, Lancaster and dragged somebody out you'd either find a world class wrestler or a world class rugby player yes because obviously the other thing about Wigan is rugby league yeah it was the home of rugby league it was one of the major clubs of the time you know along with Hull City Hulkingston Rovers um, Warrington those clubs the original founders of the rugby league and again there that's why that became professional yeah because essentially there was a meeting at a hotel because they it wasn't even that they wanted to get paid they just wanted to be able to pay them expenses to go to matches mm. to like you know money for the bus and a sandwich and that yeah. was it well a pint yeah <laughs> And then Southerners were like, no, we've got to be professional amateurs. And, you know, and that's where a schism occurred. Yes, as so many stories based in England <laughs> end the schism <laughs> between North and South. <laughs> and to be honest, in professional wrestling, you have a schism between North and South as well. I mean, at the time in the 1930s, you've got the all-in movement that's happening with Athlocally. Um, and then after the Second World War, joint promotions start. And Riley's men are kind of still the ideal the what they want you yeah. know now joint promotions is much more of a show than all in is definitely yes and they're left much more characters but the actual basic building blocks of what a professional wrestling look needs to be is very much in riley's wrestlers mm-hmm. and uh, riley provides professional wrestling over the next 20 years with a kind of train of professional wrestlers to for for joint promotions yeah. um uh, the most famous ones we can think of, obviously, would be Carl Gotch and Billy Robinson. We'll talk about them in a moment or two. But having looked at the documentaries we've seen, what's your thoughts on catch wrestling as a style? And like, I know neither of us are big MMA experts. We're no, we're, we're, we're fake fight experts by a show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I so, don't, I what don't do you get, think of it watching it? Well, I don't get the UFC because the storylines are rubbish. But, <laughs> um, uh, to be honest with you, the thing that I most took away from those documentaries was the fact that even after spending nearly 20 years of my life in Lancaster I still don't understand old men from Wigan <laughs> at all it's just a lot of blokes going well when it came out war and then he went in hospital because he got got it on Ed <laughs> I needed subtitles I felt like I was watching documentaries from Japan about like K1 and stuff I may as well have been um, and also uh, if 
anybody listening to this wants to watch any of this do- these documentaries, um, the wig and hold is the yes. pinnacle of these. So if you Google the wig and hold, you'll find it on YouTube. And if you want to watch two greats of British wrestling sat in their pants in a sauna chatting about the good old days <laughs> this is the documentary for you if you want to see a man in his 50s running up and down stairs for calisthenics in his Y-fronts this is the documentary for you and I hope that neither of these men ever listen to this because I don't know whether they're still alive but they can, if they are they can definitely still kill me because uh, these are very very hard men um, that would be Tommy Moore and Ernie Riley yes indeed um, yes both great wrestlers in their own rights um To be honest with you, uh, you were just talking about the sort of image of what a pro wrestler looks like. The thing that struck me the most is um, the the sort of what these guys look like at the time is very much similar to what the big stars of America in the late sixties and and running through the seventies. You know, your Garniers, your Bockwinkles, even early Ric Flair. The image is very similar. Yeah. I mean, even uh, this is a little bit later on, but Adrian Street, um, another yeah, another yeah, yeah. another lad from the mines. Yes, funnily enough, um, uh, he started out his career as as a nature boy, didn't he? Yeah, uh, he was. I believe, yeah, he, for, he, briefly. Yeah. Um, so even when you got into the sort of more, you know, body guy era, nature boy, you know, um, bodybuilding, yeah. and yeah, Buddy Rogers. Um, yeah, the image is very, very similar. Um, yeah. So this this sort of classic, I suppose it's uh, it was originally the sort of Victorian strongman look, wasn't it? With the the you know yeah. your your, uh, your speedos and uh, yeah. and the 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 uh, Made uni- of wool, the though. unitard. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, that it's the the sort of perpetuation of the image, even through different cultural uh, yeah. areas that that struck me the most. But um, yeah, that submission style. I mean. Um, in one of the documentaries, uh, Roy Wood, um, mm. the guy who was running the snake pit at the time, was saying the moves that we're teaching now, and this, I mean, this documentary is from the 80s. Yeah. Um, he was saying the moves that we're teaching now are the move, the exact same maneuvers that we were teaching 25 years ago yeah. in this same building. Now, snake pit's still there. It's not in the same building anymore. Thankfully. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, I, I will tell you a story about that. It was the, the UWF... Um, Actually, at one point in the in the late eighties, I think it was I can't. One of the UWF trainers came to the UK to find the original state pit and then saw what state it was in, and the UWF gave them some money to rebuild it. Oh right, okay. <laughs> uh, the first rebuild, and then the Aspel Wrestling Gym, which is Roy Wood's gym, which yep. is taken the name of Snake Pit from Billy Riley's gym, mm-hmm. and is the natural successor. And as Billy Riley had the late Billy Riley's blessing when he moved, yep. has been around for well since the early nineties. Yes, yes, and. The, the, I mean, the, and the thing is, when I first started looking at wrestling stuff on the internet, which is nearly 20 years ago now, I was dead fascinated by shoot style and what it was like and the wigging guys because I was big fans of Marty Jones and Mark Rocco, Dynamite Kid. Yeah. And um, I tried finding out this stuff. And there was a little website for the, for the Snake Pit at the time, but there wasn't a whole lot of information. Now, because of UFC and people like Josh Barnett and Shayna Baszler, who yeah. wrestle catch style, they have expanded. You know, they were both Billy Robinson students, so they were from a direct line from Billy Riley. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the interest in them, 
there is an interest in professional wrestling in the original kind of shoot style much more now you can find out for more information i managed to get you a video of like 20 videos of yeah uh, a playlist which will attach to this particular yeah, show seriously you've got to watch them. <laughs> uh, especially the documentaries they're just oh, it's, uh, it's, it's just amazing um but i mean you do get uh, for I've, we have to talk about the things we don't like about this as well as the stuff we do like about it there is a sense of entitlement amongst those guys because they feel they are the best in the world well and they mean, are yeah <laughs> i would say um, perfectly acceptable <laughs> entitlement yeah but as a youngster going in i mean the dynamite kid says in his autobiography about the fact that one of the reasons why he was pulled by ted batley his trainer from the from the snake pit after only a very short while was because he didn't think it was the right way about teaching people their teaching technique is very direct and their argument being you could be the best professional wrestler in the world we don't know what you're like until you've been on a mat with us yes so they didn't trust anybody who yeah. came into that right into um, that realm i mean a lot of it is that they if you're taking the snake pit name out with you yeah um they want you to wrestle exactly how they are training because yeah. if you go out and you're not good and you've trained at the snake pit then that's it's, it's a detriment to their reputation yes they were um well, I was going to say finishing school, but start, middle, and finishing school, <laughs> to be honest with you. They, they were sort of It's like going from foundation to year six form all in one go. Yeah, exactly. You know, they, they were the training school, certainly in this country, and then later on, yeah. um, especially in Japan, uh, that reputation grew. In, in fact, it was it was the, uh, the Japanese that gave it the name of the snake pit. It was, yeah. I yeah. mean, the... the, the um, if you look at the guys who were pros in the in the thirties and forties and fifties, there they they did say about that Billy would not let them have pro matches until they were any good as a shooter. Yeah. you know you had to learn how to do the job properly, which is, and I which was the the same for most promoters all over the world. I mean, um, I was Roddy Piper has probably gone the most in depth of any of the old pros about how he learned to train and how he learned to wrestle. I think he did an out of wrestling podcast before he passed away. And he explained that he was a pretty good amateur, knew what he was doing, and he kind of just got chucked in the deep end. There was no training for him. It was just like you learn on the job and you get beat up a lot and you learn and you get better and you get better and you get beat up a lot. And that's how it works, you know. Whereas um, with Riley's men, it was it was very much like you weren't allowed to leave the the confines of the gym until you as a as a professional wrestler until you could put on a decent show based on what you knew as a wrestler yeah um i think that's that's the marked difference from a lot of the stories you hear about the a lot of the american schools and yeah. some of the more sort of carny elements yeah, where yeah. it was very much like oh um you know we're going to show you how real this is kind of thing yeah yeah uh, it wasn't so much that in the snake pit it was, no. it was more there was an acceptance of what you were getting into was very real indeed. Uh, oh, absolutely. From a very early... Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it was it was more, we're not going to let you leave here and have a match until you are snake pit level. Yeah, and, you, and um, there was also for the, the, there was, there's an, a safety element to that because the guys from the snake pit had a reputation and therefore people were going to target you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I've... And it happened with guys all over the world. I was, of all people, I was listening to a shoot interview with uh, Bert Miller who was... Um, Butch from the Bushwhackers, right? And he de- <laughs> he debuted against a snake pit guy in New Zealand. A guy had learnt to wrestle in Wigan. He was I can't remember his name, but he was deaf. They used to have lights between rounds to tell you when the round was going to end. <laughs> 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 and he was deaf, and um, he and he 
Butch ended up wrestling and he, and he said he, he pushed me from pillar to post because mm. he was a state pit guy and that's the way they were taught. Yeah. And he said, yeah. And, I mean, maybe nobody's ever heard of that guy, but... <laughs> no, but there's so many of them yeah. that, you know... At that um, time, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was just a factory for professional wrestlers. And not a monster factory. Not, not indeed. Larry Sharp's monster factory. Just an actual factory of professional wrestlers. Um, and in fact... One of the things, and me and Ben Spindler talked about this in the very early days of the Troopany Show when we were discussing the world of sport era, when we didn't go as in-depth as we are doing on this series, but we were discussing that at the time, as joint promotions became like the key promoter in, in Europe, well, in Britain, to be honest with you, the British Light Heavyweight Championship was essentially um, snake pit property. Yeah. Because they, they could control it. And Ben was like... But why? Because it's a promoted sport. And I was like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you look uh, from uh, all these people that held this belt, uh, back in the day, Athel Oakley was the first one under the all-in rules. Les Kelly was the last person to be British heavyweight, light heavyweight champion back in the late 50s. Norman Walsh, all these greats, Bill McDonald. And then you get to 1952, and Ernie Riley holds the championship for three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loses it to Charlie Fisher uh, when he vacated the belt. Then he wins it back in 55. Then Billy Joyce, a, a, another... Yes, indeed. <laughs> another Wigan guy. He gets it and he holds it for two years. Then Roy Sinclair, who isn't a Wigan guy, but he loses it to, to Ernie Riley. Um, and then Billy Joyce takes it off Ernie Riley. And then the next person after that is is Mark jo- Marty Jones, who defeats Mark Rocco. Both snake pit guys. Yep. Um, Dave Finley, who's not a snake pit guy, we have to say. However, still, you uh, know. Honorary? <laughs> I, w- I mean, we're not in a position to make that call. But, uh, just putting that out there to the universe, man. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, essentially, so it's Dave Finley, Marty Jones wins it back again, and then Al Kilby again wasn't a snake pit guy, but he was very well respected as, uh, as a British heavyweight, uh, British wrestler from 85. The title goes vacated when All-Star take it over. King Ben, uh, Al Kilby, School Murphy, uh, he's another guy from the, the, the same era. All of those guy guys who own it. Uh, Seiki Yoshikawa owned it in uh, 2014. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Dean Almark is the current British Light Heavyweight Champion. Well, there you uh, go. A title he, held, he won in 2014 has held for 2,026 days. <laughs> what you a know, legend. <laughs> But also another Lancastrian. Yes, indeed. Um, so yeah, so you know the British light heavyweight championship was kind of snake pit property, mm. but it kind of showcased what the snake pit guys were about. And it always meant there was a foothold for shape of snake pit guys because joint promotions were very thankful to the snake pit for providing all this talent. Yes. Okay, and it kind of it was there, kind of like it. it also, payoff. it lent that air of legitimacy. Yeah, this uh, is the as thing. well. You know. I mean, even if, you know, you're some of the, the more sort of old school guys, if that was a word that you could use <laughs> in, the, in the 50s and 60s, I don't know. Um, you know, they might, have, they might have looked at some of the, uh, the bigger stars coming through during that era and thought, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't my granddad's wrestling. No. But that light heavyweight title was still very much the sort of the wrestler's wrestler's title. Yeah, it was. You know, it, it was the Intercontinental Championship in the 80s, like in the WWE. Yeah, the, the work rate title. The work rate title, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting to me, like Ernie Riley, as such a stamp on 
that particular division and that particular title belt. And the guys that follow him in Marty Jones and, and Mark Rocco and Dave Finley are very much in the same mould. Dave is a bit more of a showman, but he is as hard as nails yeah. <laughs> and a shooter. And the funny thing is, we watched the documentary and Tommy Moore and Ernie Riley are watching this uh, wrestling show. Sat in the living room Sat in a terraced house somewhere in Lancashire. Smoking cigars and, yeah. you know, having a vino. And it's, uh, <laughs> if I remember the match correctly... It's a big daddy and some poor soul yeah. against some other poor soul and Rasputin. Oh, yeah. And that thing was Rasputin was trained by Dave Finley's dad. Ah. And they're saying, oh, it's, it's not as realistic. He doesn't know what he's doing. Actually, <laughs> Rasputin was a pretty hard shooter because he used to go into France and these big halls in France and he was the pro- he was the only real proper heel they had in France because it's all aerial wrestling in France. Yeah. They all like the aerial stuff. Um and Rasputin would go into these halls, start swinging chairs about, and so there'd be riots for him. <laughs> so he had to look after himself. He'd be dead fairly quickly. <laughs> but uh, and the other, th- the other thing that made us laugh, absolutely laugh, there's an all-star show at Wigan Fair yeah. at the end of this little short clip, and Tommy and Ernie are going, well, he's, he's pretty good, but he's, he's just, it's just show business, isn't it? It's, it's just, he's just trying too hard. To it, not, it won't last five seconds. It won't last five seconds. And <laughs> it, it's, just not, it's, it's, just not showing, it's just not showing the business in the best possible light. That person they're talking about is Robbie Brookside, key <laughs> um, <laughs> trainer at uh, WWAE UK Performance Centre, former key trainer at the Performance Centre in uh, Florida. Yep. He, he, one of the most respected professional wrestlers on planet Earth. Yeah, so if you're playing uh, old school wrestling bingo, Oh, you want to tick, tick the uh, the uh, ruining the business uh, <laughs> yes. square there? I, honestly, the earliest we've seen of this was like when um, I think it was Farmer Burns complaining that Frank Gotch's ankle lock ruined the business yeah. in 1920. I, I, I mean, there's bound to be an earlier an earlier version of that. I'm sure there's, there's probably a there's probably a Greek urn somewhere that's got a, a, a fresco on it depicting somebody blokes. ruining the business. Two naked blokes and an old straight an older guy at the side going, yeah. neck, yeah. look at that ankle lock, even ruining the business. Yeah, pre-professional <laughs> wrestling, <laughs> still referred to as ruining the business. Yes. Um. <laughs> But yeah, and it is that is. But it's, they did take their professional wrestling very seriously. Now we need to talk Billy Robinson, yes, because we have to talk Billy Robinson because he is by far and away the most famous. Uh, what's the word? Purveyor of the shoot style. Well, him and Carl Gotch are on about an even keel, I think. Yeah, depending on where you're from. Yeah, if, depending if you're Belgian or from <laughs> Manchester. <laughs> Belgian. <laughs> Belgian. Yeah. Well, Kurt Ersatz, as he was originally and was actually from Belgium, he wasn't German. No. But it's but people, again, in, as in professional so, wrestling, people know where Germany is and how many famous Belgians do you know? Yeah, so it's, it, it's a Belgian suplex. <laughs> it's actually a Belgian <laughs> suplex. doesn't sound quite right, does it? Well, it, it? doesn't, does it? No. But, you know, a yeah. Flanders suplex. A Flanders suplex. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, a Flemish suplex. Yes. That's it, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so... Uh, and essentially Carl Gotch um, I, I think it was Billy Joyce Carl Gotch claimed himself to be the best wrestler in Europe and then wrestled Billy Joyce and got his head kicked in yes. and went I probably should be a bit more humble and go learn other things and, and go check out this shed in- <laughs> <laughs> and turned up at this shed and learnt loads of stuff mm. Billy, Robin- Billy Robinson was a local lad from Manchester who got into wrestling. Um, his brother, Jackie Robinson, was a very good lightweight, but he never left the UK scene. Billy was 
pretty talented as a shooter. Mm-hmm. Arguably, a lot of the guys of his era said he could have won a gold medal as an amateur. Gold medal as an amateur. Yep. Um, was a renowned shoot specialist. Had more influence on the British wrestling scene than people give him credit for. He was the guy that suggested Johnny Saint should go to the wrestling school instead of boxing because his argument was, you're from Wigan, you're from Manchester. <laughs> well, he wasn't from Manchester. He says, you're from Manchester. There's far more sparring partners in yeah. wrestling than there is in boxing. And I'm not sure that's the case anymore. But No, no, but that's, that's the thing. Um, that was at the time Manchester and boxing didn't get on very well. Now... At the time, mm. were you likely to make more money as a wrestler or as a boxer? Here's the thing. You were likely to have less costs. Yeah. Okay. Now, for those of you who don't understand how boxing works, this is a really important thing because UFC and mixed martial arts works on the same principle. Mm-hmm. You may get paid, say you're a middle card boxer, you're, you're pretty good, you're on the way up, and you get paid £5,000 for a fight. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a good deal. One night's work, £5,000. But out of that £5,000, you have to pay all of your contract fees. You have to pay for your manager. You have to pay for your corner men. You have to pay for the training facility you've worked in for your your boot camp. And you have to pay your regular training fees, plus eat food, transportation, hotel, the whole nine yards. So Mm. you will probably only get to see about 500 quid of that £5,000. So when they say, like, you know... uh, the world heavyweight champion got 14 million pounds for winning this fight. That isn't strictly speaking true. He no. probably saw about 3 million of that. Yeah, that was the purse. Yes, but, that yeah. was the purse. That doesn't necessarily That's, mean that. Now, as yeah. a professional wrestler, no, you are not going to earn 5,000 pounds in a night. Having said that, the way that wrestling worked in the 1950s and 1960s, where the working men clubs had a circuit, as well as the independent promoters within Manchester having a circuit, mm. if you lived in an urban metropolis like Manchester, you could wrestle seven nights a week, twice on Sunday, and make a perfectly good living doing it. Yeah. Johnny Saint pointed out in his uh, wrestling podcast with Colt Cabana that he stopped being a fitter in a factory when he was earning more money professional wrestling, and it only took him about 18 months to get to that point. Yeah. So as like earning a decent living... Yes, professional wrestling. And as you watch the, the videos, like Tommy Moore probably didn't look after his money quite as well as Ernie Riley did. And, no. and Tommy looked comfortable, but Ernie was living a luxurious lifestyle for a guy from Wigan, let's be honest, who <laughs> <laughs> grew up in the 1950s, semi-detached bungalow yeah, and... Pies and peers. Yeah, semi-detached <laughs> wife as well, no doubt. But yeah, he was, he was the... You know, the, if you looked after your money and you were a good example of how to run a business like mine, you could make a decent living as a wrestler. I doubt you could make the big money you could as a boxer. Yeah. But then again, how many British heavy British boxers from the 1950s had that kind of cachet yeah. um, that, that the wrestlers would have? Like, as a, I mean, I can name five or six heavyweights like who would make the British kind of like zeitgeist to the 1950s and 60s, but I couldn't tell you five or six boxers. No. Joe Bugner, Henry Cooper... Yeah. That's about it. Yeah, and I mean, Henry Cooper, arguably more famous post-actual boxing career yes. than, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, and Henry Cooper was, you know, as a as a, as a TV personality and, sale, and a vegetable salesman, you know. Yeah. That was basically his bag. <laughs> but as a boxer, he... Well, he had that match against it, Ali, he, didn't he? He was the first person to put Muhammad Ali on the canvas. Yeah. And that was his claim to fame. But I couldn't tell you a bunch of any boxers of that particular time period. No. No. Whereas, you know, you look at wrestlers of that time period, even not just heavyweights, I mean, like, people like Mr. TV, Jackie Paolo, Mick McManus, Johnny Saint, Jim Breeks, um, Kendo Nagasaki, Steve mm. Vidor, 
giant haystacks big daddy even before tv but as probably had more influence on the british zeitgeist than cat weasel cat weasel <laughs> kind of came on in the 70s but you know what i mean i just wanted to you say know cat weasel yeah <laughs> but yeah so yeah, you could, as a wrestler, you were making more consistent money than yes. as a boxer. Yeah, I can definitely say but, that. Yeah, so, and also, of course, um, from my point of view as a wrestling fan, Billy Robinson is the person that discovers Marty Jones and encourages him to go to the snake pit to try and work off some aggression. Marty had a eye issue, uh, much the same as Billy did. Billy was blind in one eye. Mm. And Marty was also blind in one eye and was kind of picked on at school for it and had a load of aggression issues and Billy told Billy talked his dad into letting him go to the snake pit and learning how to wrestle and work off some of the aggression yeah and it worked to treat because he became one of the best professional wrestlers in the world and best trainers yeah laterally so. yeah um, and actually is trained one of my mates Mick Grant Ah. You know, Councillor Grant from Scunthorpe. I do, yes. His son. Oh, well, there you go. He's a referee. <laughs> <laughs> Used to be a bass player in a band and uh, went to Marty Jones Wrestling School. <laughs> <laughs> Much like you could we say. We all used to be bass players in bands, James. <laughs> We're all bass players one day. <laughs> it's like being a goalkeeper when you're at school. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, Some mindset. people just grow out of it. <laughs> Anywho, where was we? So, yes, Billy Robinson... Ends up being this big star in the UK, British heavyweight champion on TV in the late 60s and has developed a, a, a kind of a, a good following. He's charismatic. He can work a match with anyone and make them look astoundingly good. Was a bit stiff with a lot of people. Yeah, tad, yes. Yes, um, which kind of leads him to believe that perhaps the UK scene isn't for him. Mm. Um, and he gets opportunities elsewhere. Most obviously, most famously, is his opportunities in North America and in Japan. He gets signed on with Vern Gagne and becomes the AWA's policeman, which is an advantageous job to have in North American wrestling. Yeah, Essentially, a policeman is the person that puts somebody in their place should they take something on that they perhaps shouldn't. Yes, uh, sort of the uh, the the locker room court, the wrestlers' court of its day. Yes, except for the fact the punishments were awfully physical. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas nowadays it's kind of like an embarrassing thing to do, or you know, you have to go do play a trick on another wrestler somebody doesn't like, or yeah. various it, other bits and pieces. It's kind of the best position you can find yourself in the AWA without being related to Vern. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and there's also the point. It's like Vern Gagne. Double hard bastard yeah. has to have somebody to protect him. Yeah. Because you can't have your eyes in the back of your head. And as we discussed last week, classic uh, balding on top uh, <laughs> <laughs> look that yeah. you've got to have to be a star in the wrestling business. <laughs> also, Billy catches on in Japan as well. He catches on with uh, international and with all Japan pro wrestling. Mm. More so with international. He did a lot of training with international IWE. We talked about that in the Beginner's Guide to Japan series. Uh, was one of the people responsible for like, bringing a lot of the British ties early into the day. Joe Cornelius uh, spent a lot of time in Japan who was told, you're only going to come over to train. And in the course of about three weeks later, he was wrestling people. It's one of the reasons why Joe Cornelius ended his career with long black tights because of the amount of scars around his knees because he didn't yes. really have proper knees by the time he finished in Japan. Yeah, and we um, we will go into more detail uh, in a later episode about this sort of Britain to Japan pipeline. Yeah. Um, but it's worth mentioning now that the light heavyweight title that we were talking about, that the that's the style that went to Japan. Yeah. Like yeah. that light heavyweight style. That's the the style that sort of started to filter from Britain out into ver into different parts of the world, and that's it's kind of the 
the biggest kind of export, I think. Yeah. From this era, certainly. It certainly is. And it, you get to see, like, that when you look at Billy Robinson's pro career, especially later mm. in his career. I watched some of his matches from Houston and from St. Albans, hilariously. On that playlist, you can find him wrestling Lee Bronson in St. Albans Town Hall. Yeah. And then 18 months later, he's wrestling the Houston Coliseum against Dory Funk Jr. Because that's he had that kind of career. <laughs> Playing in a, wrestling in a telephone booth in Singapore. Uh, <laughs> South Africa in front of some boar trekkers. Live yes. from the crab shack. <laughs> he, because he, he got paid good money to go wrestle around the world. And he yep. was, there, was, there is an international scene that, he, that you don't really know about. Okay, as a wrestling fan, if you just watch wrestling, even if you're a dedicated professional wrestling fan and you watch all the streaming services you can find, there is a wrestling tour you won't see Hmm. because it's in the back end of Singapore and it's in India and it's in fields in South Africa. And, you know, these matches... Football stadiums in Nigeria. (laughs) (laughs) Local promoters who pay good money for guys who know how to work a match. And Billy Robinson was one of the pioneers of that. Yep. That massive audiences in front of thousands of people that you don't see because it's just not televised wrestling and yeah. it's not considered good wrestling it's not artistically satisfying wrestling and actually it's probably some of the best wrestling you'll see anywhere mm. because it's to an absolute base audience so i have no clue what's going on yeah yeah um yeah so you have to it, the fundamentals are absolutely key yeah um you need to and it's sort of i mean this is when the style filtered into the camps in uh, yeah. uh the holiday camps in the UK as well it's that yeah. that's still to this day uh because you've got crowds coming in who know nothing about wrestling it's just another show <laughs> it's like, you know have you got Cirque du Soleil and then <laughs> yeah and then the wrestling so um, you so you've got to, you've got to do that absolutely bare bones from yeah. a from a storyline from a uh heels faces point of view yeah uh, William Regal still maintains the best match you ever saw was Marty Jones wrestling somebody I can't remember his name and I've uh, there actually is there isn't footage of the match but I've definitely seen these two wrestle before and the guy's from Lincoln and I can't remember his name bald headed chap moustache one of the great <laughs> Willie Thorne <laughs> no <laughs> I'll, I'll look it up and I'll find out for you in a second um he, they, but they had a match in South Africa in a football stadium. There's 20,000 people there. It's chucking it down with rain. No cover for the ring. And he said they had the most fascinating professional wrestling match you can probably imagine. Yeah. Because it, it, they've got to go on. Yeah. They have to. And that's it. You know, and it, it's a different style of wrestling than what you see in televised wrestling because televised wrestling is about telling a story in 20 minutes that has to get a range of emotions over, tell a different story than the one that's gone on before. And there's all sorts of things. Whereas this style of wrestling is very much the very much kind of like the more like the variety shows, more like you would see in the turn of the 19th century. Yeah. And you do, I mean, you do still see that in modern British independent wrestling, um, more so on the sort of family friendly shows. I think that there's, there's a little bit of, a lot of wrestling fans these days sort of look down their noses a little bit at that. Yeah. But some of the best shows I've ever seen have been those style shows. I absolutely love that. And we, there's, there's nothing better than seeing a load of like six, seven, eight-year-old kids going absolutely crazy <laughs> at a wrestling match. It's brilliant because then you, you just look at that and think, well, you know, the next 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, that's... that's- you know, I, I one of the interview, one of the early interviews I did as a wrestling journalist with Dan Reed from Pro Wrestling Eve. Yeah. You know, oh, by the way, 
the but on the eve of women's international women's international women's day pro wrestling eve announced last night a show where no men are allowed yeah that's awesome dan can't go <laughs> dan has managed to ban himself from his own wrestling promotion yeah which i what? don't think has ever been done before no. <laughs> <laughs> amazingly like you would think that yes. would have happened at some point dan you? reed you're a genius yeah um, Possibly Shane McMahon's the only person that's ever managed that before. <laughs> but Dan's the only one to do it intentionally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh, Dan said you have to give credit to people like um, All Star promoter Brian Dixon, mm-hmm. who was the one who told wrestling fans how wrestling works. Yes. Because there was no other way of finding out about it. You know, he put on shows that were nuts and bolts basic, Mm. that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. They would teach you how to appreciate professional wrestling stage by stage. The opening match would be 20 minutes long. It would explain how holds work. The second match would be more interesting. The third match would give you a lot more uh, kind of like interest. And finally, you could understand the championship match at the end of the night. Yeah. So he, he built like this entire empire around the idea that professional wrestling was for everyone that you didn't need television for it despite being the guy that kind of exploited television more than any other british promoter um we will get on to brian dixon we can do three or four episodes oh, on how easily, great brian yeah. dixon is um it, but really it's it's amazing what you see from like in this time period where uh billy robinson is kind of like the king of the walk as far as pro wrestling is concerned mm-hmm. now there are plenty of negative stories about billy robinson and his yeah but who isn't there from that time <laughs> i mean I... but there is there is also the point is like he's a guy that attracts trouble because he is the guy double well hard yeah and carl gotch has the same issue there's plenty of people who don't like carl gotch um because of his attitude and one of the reasons why he didn't really catch on in north america was because nobody trusted him yes you know the one of the 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 classic story of carl gotch is essentially got blackballed out the nwa by buddy rogers because buddy rogers was nwa world heavyweight champion he would have nothing to do with carl gotch because buddy wasn't a shooter he was Mm. the ultimate showman and to be fair to buddy he was a great showman. He really elevated the NWA and then the WWWF championships when he became the heavyweight champion for them. But he wasn't a shooter and he didn't trust anybody other than his close faction, who were the guys he brought into every territory he worked for. And it was a shooter that was in his undoing in the end anyway. Bruno Sammartino was the guy who upended him for the WWWF title on strict orders to make sure he left with the belts. Yeah, so that's the sort of first era where you get guys coming through the sort of post Thez era. Yeah. Where you get guys holding the big belts who couldn't necessarily keep hold of them under all circumstances. No. Um that's like you didn't you didn't need to blackball people from promotions before then because you could just put your Yeah, put your, your guy, biggest your guy, guy like in. Billy Robinson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he would just beat the living piss out of them. Um, <laughs> and it would be totally fine. But yeah, um yeah, this sort of a this is the the changing of the era, isn't it? Internationally yeah. speaking anyway. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's as well, there is like, Robinson is so good as a professional wrestler. You look at the matches he has in Japan, there's a technical masters like Tony Burrow, he can wrestle all night and yeah. have great matches with. But he also has great matches with Abdullah the Butcher. Mm. You know, he wrestles guys you wouldn't necessarily would gel together and it fits. You know, he can have the matches he had with Abdullah over the United National, the NWA United National Championship is awesome. They're awesome. They're great watches. They're entertaining. And you wouldn't think. It would work. A shooter versus a brawler doesn't necessarily down the years work, especially 
Abdullah, who again has his detractors. You know, there are people who don't well. like Abdullah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In that time period, for the same reasons that they don't like Billy. Um, Abdullah can't look after himself in the same way Billy can. Billy Robinson go around giving people hepatitis. No, he didn't, but that was, <laughs> that was in the 80s. I'm talking oh, about okay. in the 1970s. But, Just checking. No, Billy did not, know. But, you know, there are... <laughs> Dynamite told the story of there was someone who was, who was taking a few things off because Stampede was just full of old people like Billy Robinson and Abdullah the Butcher. Yeah, um, and there was the late seventies. There was a story of somebody came in and was trying a few things on with the young lads, and they gets booked with Abdullah. Now Abdullah always kept his fingernails dead sharp because he couldn't like shoot. He was a reasonable fighter, but he couldn't shoot. He shoot. was a big lad, big lad. <laughs> last one, yeah, He's a big lad, but he was out of shape. And. Uh, <laughs> guy picks him up in a bear hug and Abdullah just puts his fingernails to his throat and says put me down champ <laughs> <laughs> and said treated him like a lamb after that that was fine <laughs> so yeah um, there, there was there was Billy was wasn't necessarily liked in certain places and said that they loved him in Japan they loved him as a trainer they loved him for his attitude Minneapolis where he was uh, considered you know a god of professional wrestling in much the same way Kyle Gotch was he was very much looked after Biggest match at the time in AWA history was was Vern Gagne versus Billy Robinson for the AWA Heavyweight Championship at Comiskey Park. Thirty nine thousand people. Yeah, that's a big crowd. The kind of crowd he would never get in the UK. Um, and in the same way, Carl Gotch is uh, kind of in a similar mold, but he kind of went a different way. Carl and Billy were friends to an extent. Apparently, that if they had a problem, they sorted out the old fashioned way mm. on the mats. Um, but they never really fell out. But, you know, you look at way, where Carl was involved in the UWF and developing that shoot style even further. He was very much at the cutting edge of what shoot professional wrestling should be. Mm. And he helps New Japan Pro Wrestling get started. He's the founder, really, of Strong Style with Antonio Inoki. The first match New Japan has is the god of professional wrestling, Carl Gotch versus Antonio Inoki. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it's interesting to, like, th- this time period, Billy Robinson especially, it's only really in the last two or three years that we've had guys from Britain in those sort of yeah. positions internationally in matches yeah. of that kind of caliber on the top of the card. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, realistically, it's only your... Zack Sabre Jr., Will Ospreay. And, and now... Um, oh, that's terrible. I've forgotten his name. Chris Ridgway. No. <laughs> <laughs> Drew McIntyre. There you go. That's there the you one. go. There yeah, Drew the, Galloway. Drew McIntyre. Drew McIntyre. Yeah. But yeah, Finn Balor. Well, he's Irish. I shouldn't mention. Yeah. yeah. But he wrestled, <laughs> he wrestled. But he learned the British style. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a big gap of years. You know, yeah. with some big stars in. And it is. It's thirty-eight but, years since Carl. Literally thirty-eight years this week. It should have been the anniversary show last Tuesday, but it got cancelled because of the coronavirus issues yeah. in Japan. It should have been last Monday. Should have been the, the thirty-eighth anniversary show since Carl Gotch wrestled. Uh, uh, Antonio Inoki mm. and you look in that time period the guys who were going across to Japan Marty Jones and uh, Mark Rocco and uh, Dynamite Kid David Boy Smith uh, all of these people which we'll talk about in future episodes because yes. it's important we do talk about them separately but there was this freight train of people from Lancashire specifically influenced not, at least not, not freight train he didn't go <laughs> <laughs> of talent that emerged all around the world but it came from that Lancashire style yes you know it was devised in that that shed in Wigan. That's where it all came from. Hmm. Um, Billy ends up coming back to Britain. There is a match, brilliant match on the uh, on the world of sport you can find on YouTube, which is part of our playlist, uh, where he wrestles in St. Albans. 
I just love that. St. Albans, Houston, yeah. Minneapolis. <laughs> um, and, you know, Gotch kept pro wrestling until the late 80, 1980s and then became part of the UWF, whose training facility was known as the Snake Pit. Yes. Because they took the name and, like I said earlier, they were the ones that kind of like helped rebuild it. Yeah. Um, and it became this watchword for what amateur wrestling should be about. And then re- when Billy, jo- Billy Riley did eventually retire... In the late 1980s, Roy Wood, who was one of his long-term students, took over as a trainer and as a coach. He went over to Japan and had a few matches of shoot style in Japan and then came back as a coach to Japan. Um, And it became this brand associated with amateur wrestling, then MMA. And when Roy opens up the Aspal Wrestling Gym, which is what the Snake Pit is now... Mm. They allowed women in. They allowed <laughs> women's fitness. What will they think on of next? Saturday mornings and oh. kids' amateur wrestling classes? They'll and- be letting them drive next. <laughs> <laughs> but they did. But they did. They did try and modernize it, and it became. They realized, like as an amateur wrestling gym, the thing to go for was Olympic money. And, yeah, yeah. And they 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 pursued amateur wrestling for a long while, and then eventually people were saying, "Well, why don't you teach them catch wrestling before before you go, Roy?" And yeah. no one else knows about it. And at that point, Billy Robinson and Carl Gotch were obviously training shooters as well for UFC and for Pride. Um, people like Josh Barnett and Shana Basler, who we've mm-hmm. talked about. And they become this... It becomes this brand, this style of catch as catch can becomes a brand that's world-renowned. And, you know, Josh Barnett ends up being UFC champion, IWGP heavyweight champion. His matches now, if you watch Bloodsport, or even if you watch the match he had with uh, Bobby Lashley on Impact Wrestling a few years ago are still based on that Lancashire all-in strong style. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's just a, a, like post-80s um, from the world of professional wrestling, you get fewer and fewer of these guys coming out of the snake pit and becoming professional wrestlers, primarily yeah. for cultural reasons because you could make a living somewhere other than a pit in Wigan. Yeah. Um, sort of, well, not necessarily 80s, but sort of certainly into the 90s. So, I mean, modern-wise in pro wrestling the direct snake pit mm. alumni are few and far between. You've got yeah. Jack Gallagher yeah. who um had a brief MMA career yeah. as well and then uh and then obviously went into pro wrestling. Um and now you've got um who still trains at the Snake Pit, I think, um uh Kev Lloyd. Yeah. Uh who's a really good uh pro wrestler, mainly in the Northwest, but he's he's starting to get um some more some more looks outside. He was part of the ambition tournament in Germany last year, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the at the weekend of the sixteen carat um, for WXW. So, and but there's not that many in pro wrestling no. now because, as you say, the focus now really for the Snake Pit is more MMA and Olympic wrestling. Yeah. Um, that's what the kids who are coming through want to concentrate yeah. on because. They're not trying to escape the pits, essentially. <laughs> and the, da- the daft thing is, probably the biggest, one of the biggest matches at WrestleMania this year will be Becky Lynch versus Shayna Baszler, which is essentially yeah. the philosophies of two styles of British wrestling will be high up on the card, if not headlining yeah. WrestleMania this year. Mm. You know, and it, it, you know, it, we're still talking about these people as professional wrestlers. Their influence and, is still there. Well, and the other one is Drew McIntyre, Brock Lesnar. Yeah, you know. I mean, you could argue Brock Lesnar's style. Yeah, it's. I mean, I suppose it's more I of mean, an. You might call catch. it a Kimura, but we all know it's a double wrist lock. <laughs> <laughs> Terry Funk used to walk around with a t-shirt saying it's a double wrist lock. 
Um, but yeah, you're right. It is like, I mean, I suppose you could say Lesnar comes out of the University American system, but Minneapolis, Minneapolis again. He's it's the the Ganya era who had a big influence on Minnesota amateur wrestling because Ganya was an amateur outstander. Yeah, and the Wrecking Crew, and yeah, all of them there because again, Minnesota has the same issue that Wigan has. It, yeah, it it's really it's, cold it, and there's nothing to do. It's the Wigan of America, essentially, <laughs> with underfloor heating. And yeah, snow. yeah. Yes. Well, they, I think their winters are a bit worse than winters. <laughs> but against that's the reason why you get so many great wrestlers out in Minneapolis is because there's nothing to do. Mm. You either play ice hockey, you go wrestling, or you start a band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's it. You know, that, that is literally all the options there are. It's again, the, other, the one other thing that Wigan is famous for. Music. Music, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, if you've got terrible weather, there's plenty of excuses to stay inside and do something interesting. Yeah. So that's the reason why, that's why the reason why they worked. And it, it's, we'll talk more about the professional wrestlers who came out of the Snake Pit era in the 1960s and 1970s and in a future episode because we've kind of, kind of covered the Riley years, I think, as best we can. Yeah. Um, and showing you the kind of like, the, the influence they had on professional wrestling in the UK. Yeah, but it's it's important to to get the that base point. You need to know about the snake bit because yeah. everything flows from it. Yeah, exactly. You know, Athlocally is the guy that kind of sets the canvas, and yeah. Billy Riley is the person who paints on it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just to go back on, I said Marty Jones versus Terry Rudge was the gentleman involved, and Terry Rudge is from Lincoln, uh, a great Terry pro. Uh, yeah, referee referees for um, Lincoln uh, Lincoln promotion uh, still. Roseville, I can't remember the name of the promotion off the top of my head but yeah he, he referees for them occasionally too but Terry Rudge excellent professional wrestler who was a guy who made a living off that international circuit for a long time mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk more about that as well well thank you very much for listening to the Troopany show today my name is James Troopany you can find me at Sheriff Lone Star Simon where can we find you you can find me at Butlins Club where all good Butlins Clubs are sold <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously, I've got I've got a T-shirt with it written on. If anybody wants to buy it, <laughs> just the one. <laughs> it's yeah, it's literally one. just one. It's got William Regal's face on it, so you probably have to throw him a few books as well. <laughs> you can find the Troopany Show at Troopany Show. You can find us on Facebook, the Troopany Show, as well as Patreon, the Troopany Show, where you can feature us free for everyone, free forever for everyone. Even I got that catchphrase right: free forever for everyone. <laughs> Uh, you can also forever, forever, forever. forever. <laughs> Can't say that we have to give Rocky Romero money every time we use that oh, really? line. Yeah, he he copyrighted it. After He's got enough funk. money. <laughs> uh, n- this week, by the way, the return of telling stories looks at the forgotten tag teams, the fabulous kangaroos, and the very birth of professional wrestling tag teams. And we talk a bit more about Toots Mont there as well. So you can listen to me give you the story of the fabulous kangaroos. Tag team you've probably never heard of, but that's the reason why it's called the Forgotten Tag Team. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. We'll be back next week. Not sure what we're covering next week. Well, I think we'll be talking Marty Jones and Mark Rocco and and some uh, some Black Tiger probably. We will do. We will be. It's uh, as w- the the thing is with the coronavirus thing issue is essentially this is ideal for us because there's only two of us in the room. We can't hurt anyone else. That is true. Um, and of course, th- there is no wrestling anywhere. No. Apart from in Oberhausen last night. Yes. Uh, which was very cool and very interesting. Um, but uh, we don't cover WXW, so. No, we, I mean. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's lovely. We mentioned it earlier. We mentioned on, it earlier. Briefly. On. Yes. So. Um, uh, it, it's nice, just not our bag of, t- bag of 
Yeah, I mean, we could probably, if we knew anything about it, probably do an hour on Carl Gotch to WXW, maybe. But, yes, uh, we can. We there's <laughs> bound to be something there. We don't know what it is. Yeah, it, so there is a bit of a gap between Carl Gotch. But then again, Carl Gotch isn't German. No, that's true. Yes. So, Otto Vance, who's Austrian. See, WXW started wrestling in Germany, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's it's, it. It's Bobby Guns and no one else. <laughs> Anyway, take care. We'll see you next week. Bye. Doom, 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 ba, doom, ba, doom, <laughs> Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.